Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. All right, well, during Eastertide, we're talking about the supremacy of Christ. And today I want us to look in Ephesians 3 at the mystery of Christ. Ephesians 3, verse 3. The mystery was made known to me by revelation. The mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. Seventeen years ago, the Holy Spirit gave me five words. Five words that would serve as prophetic signposts to help guide our church out of easy, cheesy, cotton candy Christianity into something much better where the water turns to wine. The second of those five words is mystery. Cross mystery, eclectic community revolution. Mystery. Everybody say mystery. God is a mystery. God is the mystery. Mysterion. That's that, that's that word that the Apostle Paul likes so much. Some people don't like mystery. The Apostle Paul likes it. Mysterion. He uses that word all the time in his epistles. He's very at home with mysterion, with mystery. Mystery, of course, is something hidden, something that's secret. The prophet Isaiah said, truly you are a God who hides yourself. I do think God plays hide and seek. Uh, I think God does play with his children. You ever play hide and seek with your children? Think about playing with a very small child, a two or three year old. If you're it and you're hiding... If you want to, you could hide in a way, I mean, that they would never find you. You could get in your car and drive to another city. God could remain eternally hidden. But he allows himself to be found. If you, if you play the game right, if you play hide and seek right with a child, what you do is you make them work as hard as they can to find you, but you always make sure they find you. But you make them work for it. I think that's what God does. Seek for me and you will find me when you search for me with all your heart. I think God plays hide and seek. He could remain eternally hidden, but he allows himself to be found but by only those who truly seek after him. And of course, that involves prayer. If we don't pray, we're not going to find God. 
I mean, we can think about God, but we're not going to find God. You'll never think your way to God. I have a friend who was a philosophy professor, very intelligent, very gifted intellectually. And he was, if not an atheist, at least an agnostic. But that didn't get in the way of our friendship. And we, we had a friendship, and we would meet now and then, and he would guide me in understanding some philosophy, things I was interested in. And he knew that I had written a new book, and he asked to see it. And he read it, and then he gave me a wonderful endorsement that the publisher put on the back of the book. But when he did that, I said, you know, I don't want you to be misrepresented here, you know, as an agnostic. You should probably just say, as an agnostic, I find this book thus and so. And he said, oh, no, no, just leave it as it is anyway, because I'm not an agnostic anymore. I said, whoa, what happened? Uh, because I, I determined I wasn't going to, like, you know, try to wrestle him to the ground and convince him otherwise. Just his friend. He said, well, I just eventually arrived at the place where I knew that I couldn't, if there is a God, I couldn't figure God out with my mind. I'm not that smart. I said, so what did you do? He said, well, I started praying. I said, what did you pray? He said, I just prayed the Lord's Prayer. I said, that'll do. <laughs> if we're going to find God, we have to seek God. And if, we, if we're going to seek God, that's, that's done largely in prayer. Now, you, can, you, you probably can think your way into realizing the existence of God. I mean, you know, the evidence is there. Um, God has left plenty of clues for His reality. The heavens declare the glory of God and all that. But the true nature of God, oh, by the way, I like that new song. Your, your, what would you call that song? Your nature? That's the first time I heard it. I'll give that a hundred. I like that one. Uh, the true nature of God, though, um, remains hidden in a mystery. And the only access we have to the mystery of God is through revelation initiated by God. If we're going to really know who God is, God has to take the initiative. I mean, there's, there's hints. There, there, there's the witness of nature that there is a creator that is mighty and powerful. But beyond that, Nature doesn't give us enough to really go on. So if we're going to know God, it's because God wants to be known, wills to be known, and has begun to engage with humans through revelation. That is, revealing himself. Um, and God chose to begin the process of revelation by revealing himself to a chosen people. The people of Israel. And by, by revelation, because God took the initiative. They didn't just figure it out. Because God took the initiative, Israel began to realize some things by revelation about God. First of all, God is one. Secondly, God is good. Thirdly, God has not abandoned his creation. God has a plan to restore it and bring it back. He is going to turn the waste places into that which flourishes. And the fourth thing they realized was that somehow Israel itself was going to be a part of that project. So by revelation, that's what they understood. God is one, God is good, God has a plan, and Israel has a role to play in that plan. But what the purpose and plan actually was... The Apostle Paul here says, remained a mystery hidden for ages. 
if we're uncomfortable with mystery, uh, we will be uncomfortable with God, and we will do poor theology. Beware of those Bible answer men. (laughs) Beware of those that have all the answers, because they don't. What they've done is they've thought they have to have all the answers, so they fake it a lot of the time. And they're even faking themselves. And they're so committed to certitude, they leave no room for mystery, and you'll do bad theology. Uh, The arrogance of modernity is manifest in its quite obvious disdain for mystery. You, You see it reaching its apex in the late 18th and early, or late 19th and early 20th century. Late 1800s, early 1900s. So you had, for example, for example, this is just an example. You have, what would pass for mystery at that time was the Sherlock Holmes mysteries, which in fact were never mysteries. There was no mystery. It was just, you know, dummy Dr. Watson couldn't figure it out. And you have, you know, the man of the enlightenment, the modern man, Sherlock, it's elementary, my dear Watson. You, you, you dummy. And, so, and, this, and this infected both science and theology. And there was at that time, if you read the journals and the, and the theology and being done at the same time, both science world and theological world, there was this kind of hubris, this kind of attitude that pretty soon, you know, we're just going to have it all figured out. Then Einstein came along. And after Einstein, we began to make understandings into the world of quantum mechanics. And all that stuff of certitude went out the window. And science began to understand at the very base of reality, it is mysterious. Someone says, if, you, if quantum physics isn't way weirder than anything you've ever thought of, then you don't understand it. I don't understand it, but it is weird, I know that. So if, if science, I mean, the deepest mystery of all is the mystery of God. So if science needs humility, theology needs even more so. The mystery of God can be known only if God takes the initiative in revealing the ministry, mystery. And the Apostle Paul says that's exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is now the unfolding, the opening up, The revelation of who God is. The mystery of Christ is the revelation of the mystery of God. So that's why we say around here, God is like Jesus. God is like Jesus because Jesus is the revelation of who God is. God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. That's the case. It's always been that way. But we, we haven't always known this. But now, because of what God is doing in Christ, now we begin at least to understand the true nature of God. Now here's a question. In the revelation of the mystery of Christ, do we ever arrive at the full knowledge of God? That's my question. In the revelation of the mystery of Christ, do we ever arrive at the full knowledge of God? Well, it's a mystery. (laughs) Uh, The great theologians of Christian faith offer differing answers to that question. For example, Gregory of Nyssa said that because God is infinite, we journey eternally into the knowledge of God. That that it's a journey that we begin but never really complete. 
We just continue to journey ever deeper into the mystery of God. Thomas Aquinas, on the other hand, taught that we will arrive at the full knowledge of God. And this is the beatific vision where finally we see God in his fullness and we arrive at this state where finally, you know, it's, it's, it's all accomplished. Uh, who's right? I don't know. I mean, since I kind of lean east, maybe my sympathies are a little bit more with Gregory of Nyssa that it's an eternal journey. But the real point is to keep seeking the knowledge of God revealed in the mystery of Christ. So let's look at what Paul has to say about the mystery of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. This is, what, this is what Paul says is the mystery. And it might not seem like a mystery to you to begin with for certain reasons, but hold on, I'll, I'll get you into the mystery. Paul says this, this is the mystery. The Gentiles have become fellow heirs members of the same body, and shares in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. Now, much of human religion turns out to be an elaborate system of who's in and who's out. Much of human religion turns out to be an elaborate system of who's in and who's out. It's a system that necessarily accentuates difference so that it admits some and excludes others. And of course, this has a tendency to contribute to and even justify our intractable conflicts. Religion at its worst, there is good religion, but religion at its worst serves as the high priest to us versus them ideology. At its worst, religion comes along and says, yes, there's us and them. Them's no good. Us is beloved. God's on our side. God's with us. God blesses us, not them. Religion at its worst serves as the high priest to that very basic ideology that is at really the foundation of all of our deepest woes as a human being and species. But the mystery of Christ undoes all of this. The mystery of Christ breaks all of that down. The mystery of Christ is to bring all people and all things into full participation in God. We could say it this way, Christ is gathering all things unto himself that all things might be healed and reconciled. Jesus Christ is God joining us that we might be joined to God. Can, can you let that sink in? Jesus Christ, okay, Jesus Christ is God, the Word of God, the Logos of God. Second person of the Trinity, if we want to use that kind of language. Jesus Christ is God joining us. Emmanuel came among us, took on human flesh, became one of us. Not masquerading as one of us. I mean, he really became one of us. God joined us. He joined our race. Jesus Christ, in joining us, though, the goal, the telos, the plan, the purpose is that we might be joined to God. We know something had gone wrong. There's some sort of a rupture. There, we, were, we were far from our home. We were separated from God. Paul talks about that a lot. And then Christ came and became one of us so that we could be, he joined us so that we could be joined with God. Now, 
this is mysterious. I don't know how to necessarily explain it all really well. But I, this is what I do know. I know it's mysterious. I also know it's the gospel. I also know that it's, it's gospel truth and it's gospel good news. That God in Jesus Christ joined us that we might be joined to God. In 1 Corinthians 15, that's Paul's great theological tract on resurrection. The Apostle Paul says that, well, he talks about how in the resurrection of Christ, humanity is raised. He says it like this, 1 Corinthians 15, 22, for as in for as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. As all die in Adam. So this is, uh, you know, one of these Sundays I might just come in here and for the sermon I'll just stand here for about ten minutes and point. <laughs> this, this is preaching my sermons for me these days. Again, we know who this is. This is Adam. This is Adam. This is humankind. This is Eve. This is Eva. This is life. And why does God become man? So that he can go down into death and take hold of Adam and Eve, Adam, Heva, humankind, life. So this, 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 in fact, is the destiny of humanity. That Christ will come and say, I got you. I got you. You can't save yourself. I know that. That's why I'm here. I'm not, I'm not even just throwing you a rope. I'm coming down and I'm, I'm, I'm taking hold of you. I'm saving you. I'm rescuing you. God in Christ joined us that we might be restored and joined to God. And that's what's depicted in the Anastasis resurrection icons, the destiny of humanity. Now, then in 1 Corinthians 15, after showing that all will be raised in Christ... Paul brings his treatise to this mysterious and majestic conclusion when he says, so that God may be all in all. So that God may be all in all. Theos o pasenpas. Theos o pasenpas. That God may be all in all. The mystery of Christ is that Christ gathers all into his body to restore all things to God. Now, this is a gathering, though, into, into Christ that does not erase identity. It isn't that you're going to be absorbed into the one and, and your particularity, who you are. You know, we lose Charlie and Ruth as Charlie and Ruth because they're just absorbed into the one. No, that, is, that isn't what happened. As, as Christ brings all things unto himself that God may be all in all, theos of that as, as, as he brings humanity into himself, that it all might be brought back into God, it does not erase identity, but it does erase hostility. The idea that you have to be like me for me to love you, that gets erased. Because we all understand that, it, that we all find our belonging in God. We all belong there. So that when all is gathered into Christ, the only energy that remains is the energy of love. It's just, it's just love that's just humming. We, we have a lot of energy of hostility. Hello. I mean, you know, really, just, you know, look at the news. What do you see? You see a world that 
a lot of it, way too much of it, is energized by hostility. Hostility in that, that you're different than me, so I can't like you, I can't love you, I can't support you. And so, conflict. But in the end, Paul says that God is going to gather, that, that, that in Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive, that in the end Christ will deliver it back up to God, that God may be Theo, opasinpas, that God may be all in all. And what happens is all the hostility goes out. And the only energy that remains is love. So that St. Augustine commenting on this, on this passage, preaching a sermon out of this passage of Scripture, said this, the end will be one Christ loving himself. That is, that we're all gathered into the body of Christ and there's nothing left but love. Well, this is the mystery. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the mystery of Christian eschatology in its loftiest form. And it's beautiful. But now let's, uh, let's come down from these lofty heights because I think we're about to get dizzy. You know, we've, we've climbed so high. We're up, you know, above 20,000 feet. And we're like, whoa. So let, let's, let's come back down to some lower elevation some richer oxygen. And let's hear this mystery uh, not in the lofty theological language of Paul, but let's hear it in the more earthy language of Jesus. And this actually comes from our gospel reading for this week out of John 10. Jesus says this, verse 16. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Did you see that that, that is Jesus in, in a much more, you know, like poet-peasant way, using agrarian, you know, illustrations, saying really the same thing Paul is saying. Paul says it in lofty, elevated theological language. Jesus says it in simpler language, but they're saying the same thing. I have other sheep that do not belong to this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So what is the end? There will be one flock, one shepherd. In the end, there is to be one flock, the body of Christ, and one shepherd, Jesus Christ. The lost sheep belong to Jesus. I have other sheep, but they're not in my fold. They're lost. They're not here. They're out there. I have other sheep. They're not here. They're lost. But I've got to go get them. That's what Jesus says. I I have other sheep. The lost sheep belong to Jesus. They're still separated right now, but they're still, Jesus lays claim to it. He says, they're mine. I'm going to, I have to go get them. I'm going to have to bring them in. And I'm going to keep talking. And I'm going to keep calling. And eventually, they're going to hear my voice. And when they hear my voice, they'll come. So we're just waiting on them to hear. So in the end, there'll be no more us versus them because the destiny is for there to be one flock, one shepherd. But, but, many people, not the least religious people, Many people, including religious people, at times I might might want to say especially religious people, have a deep investment in us versus them.
There are people, they, don't, they may not come right out and say it, but they're, saying, they're almost tempted to say it. Well, if they're going to be in the flock of Jesus, I'm not sure I want to be in it. I mean, part of what makes it so wonderful is those people aren't in it. So when people who are deeply committed to us versus them hostility so that they can see themselves as something that others aren't. When they hear Jesus say, here's the destiny, here's the telos, here's the eschatology, there will be one flock, one shepherd. How do they respond? Well, predictably, they're not happy about it. So we can see that in verse uh, verse, uh, 20. Many of them were saying, He has a demon, and he's out of his mind. Why listen to him? Isn't that the way it goes? Jesus says, I got other sheep too. It isn't just all you all. I've got other sheep. They're not here yet, but I'm going to go find them. And I'm going to keep calling. And as they hear my voice, they're going to come, and I'm going to add them to this flock. And then when I get done, it's going, to be, it's going to take me a lot of work. But when I get done, there's going to be one flock, one shepherd. That guy has a demon. He's out of his mind. Who would listen to that? I want my exclusive club. <laughs> I don't want them in. Yeah. Here's the thing. When people accuse Jesus of having a demon, it's because they have a demon. <laughs> right? Uh, it's the work of the devil to accuse and divide. The, whole, the devil's whole scheme, whole kingdom, is all predicated upon that dual principle of accusation and division. That I can, I can deal with my shame by blaming others. I can deal with my sin by projecting it on others. And Jesus comes and says, you can't do that. You're all sinners. That's the bad news. But the good news, I came to save y'all. And I'm moving toward one flock, one shepherd. The one new humanity. We saw that in Ephesians 2 last week. But these demons manifest when people start advocating for one new humanity. But other people, you know, some people hear this and they go, he has a demon, he's out of his mind. I mean, you know. But you see that, right? Don't you see it? When, when people start trying to break down the things that divide us, people have a lot. People have a lot of commitment to their perceived superiority. In race, in religion, perhaps in gender, in nationality. And when Jesus says, you know, I came to tear all that down. And what I'm moving toward is one flock, one shepherd, and they freak out. They manifest the demon. He has a demon. He's out of his mind. Why would we listen to him? But then some other people had a perfect response to that. The next verse, verse 21. Others were saying, these are not the words of one who has a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? See, in the previous chapter, Jesus has healed the man born blind. He didn't go blind, he was born blind. But Jesus healed him. 
Remember, that was the one that, that the disciples said, whoa, who sinned? Who can we blame? Did this man sin or his parents sin? Who sinned? Because, you know, we see something bad, we've got to blame. Jesus says, no, that isn't what we do. We don't blame, we help. We restore. It's not that he sinned or his parents sinned, but that the works of God might be demonstrated in him. So when we see something bad, we don't ask who can we blame, we ask how can we help. And so Jesus heals the man. That's impressive, gets everybody's attention. And then he starts talking and eventually he says, you know, I've got other sheep that are not in this flock. I'm going to go find them. I'm going to keep calling. They're going to hear my voice. In the end, there'll be one flock, one shepherd. He's got a demon. He's crazy. We can't live that way. We can't have like everybody in. He's got a demon. Why listen to him? And somebody says, well, you know, that isn't really how a demon talks, I don't think. And besides that, can a demon open the eyes of one born blind? You know, we're all born blind. All of us. We're all born blind to the demonic nature of us versus them. But if we let Jesus, Jesus will heal our spiritual blindness and we'll finally see the truth. There is no them. There's only us. That whole construct of us versus them is, is, is an elaborate deception. There is no them. There's only us. And we come to realize that the destiny of humanity is to be one flock with one shepherd. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's the mystery. So what should we think about those who are presently outside the flock of Christ? I think we should just think of them as, as other sheep whom Jesus is in the process of gathering. We can be a witness to them of the one shepherd in word and love, and we should. But it's Jesus who is the shepherd. It's Jesus who does the gathering, not us. I spent a lot of my life too much of my life, under uh, self-imposed pressure of thinking I had to save a bunch of people. That'll make you crazy. And I did. I just thought I have to save people. And I was taking that on myself. And it really got out of control one time when I was in India. And I I thought I was there to save India. (laughs) And I was thinking, how am I going to save India? I mean, I really was thinking, I mean, maybe it was you know, maybe I'm exaggerating a little bit the thought process, but that was there. I thought, I, I don't even speak their languages. Their culture is so remote from mine. I'm just one little guy here. Huh? And, and there was this moment. I remember where I was sitting in New Delhi in traffic in a taxi with a big truck right behind me. And I just had this moment where I felt like Jesus said, did I ask you to save anybody? Uh, I, no. <laughs> And, and Jesus was just saying to me, I'm the Savior, not you. You talk about me. You point people to me. But you leave the rest to me. Oh, well, like, that's good news. Now I just want to go eat some ghost vindaloo and just be happy. I mean, I'll do my part. I'm not, I'm not but, but I'm not the Savior. Jesus is the one who says there will be one flock, one shepherd. And I just say amen. And amen. Stand with me.
Here I'll add this caveat. This sermon is entitled, The Mystery of Christ. So let it be a mystery. Don't try to back me into a corner and say, are you saying, are you saying, are you saying? I'm saying, it's a mystery. And I don't have all the fine points worked out, but I'm much more relaxed now. I'm much more relaxed. That it's my role to, to be a faithful witness, to try to be a faithful pastor, to point to Jesus. But these big issues belong to him, not me. Amen. So let's confess our Christian faith, and then we will receive forgiveness of sins from the Lord, and then we'll come to this table where there's, well, as Paul says, there's, there's one cup. I know we got lots of little plastic ones, but you know what we're saying. It's all Jesus. Confess with me. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And most merciful God, we confess that we've sinned against you in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. And God is gracious to all who confess their sins and in humility ask for mercy. In the name of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed, come, because it is the Lord who invites you. It is his will that those who want him should meet him here. The body of Christ broken for you. The blood of Christ shed for you.